Hello, and welcome to The Dentrepreneur Show. I am Dr. D. Todd Russell, a dentist and entrepreneur with over 30 years of experience. On this show, we're going to discuss, engage, and prepare you for taking your practice or business to its end game. How do you grow it? What metrics do you track? How do you know when is the right time and what things you need to have in place to create the best long-term value for your business and wealth for yourself? You need to polish your spirit and prepare yourself no matter how far along you are in your career. Welcome to the Dentrepreneur Show. I'm Dr. D. Todd Russell. With me today is a new acquaintance of mine, but a gentleman who has been in the dental space for quite some time up in the great white north, a friend from Canada, uh, Mr. John McNabb. John, welcome to my show. Thank you, Todd. Uh, from the great white north, even though I'm only, I guess, about probably... Uh, 80 or 90 miles north of you, but I'm on the other side of the border. So, John, you know, I I spent a long time in pro hockey as a team dentist. And so I have plenty of friends from from Canada over the years. And I I used to kid some of them. And, you know, a lot of great personalities come through. Uh, I've always... uh, been a big fan of uh, Canada and and my friends up there. So I always kidding him. I always say, you know, Canada is our largest national park. And uh, some of them love that. Some of them don't. Uh, Obviously, tongue in cheek, but I do love Canada. I, I uh, there's parts of your country that I have not gotten to, and that is on my bucket list. Um, and many of my friends live all in those places. And every year it is an open invite. Doc, please come up. You've got to see my golf course. Doc, come up. You've got to see our country. So I love it. And your city in particular, Toronto, I think is one of the most lovely cities in the world. You're so lucky to live there, in my opinion. Well, thank you. You know, I growing up and lived in Toronto essentially all my life, except for my very early years as a kid when I was in Vancouver. So I've lived in probably the two most beautiful cities in the country. But Toronto has certainly changed from when I was young. It's about uh, probably five times in population the size it was when I was a teenager. The growth has been tremendous. And the multicultural aspect of the city, with all of what that implies in terms of arts and food and entertainment has just been spectacular growth in the city. So anybody who's listening to this, come on up to Toronto for a long weekend or a week. There's more than enough to keep you interested and busy and you'll love every second. That's right. And the uh, Toronto Commerce, City of Toronto Commerce Department thanks you for that plug. But I second <laughs> that. I love it. And you're right. Multicultural is is a word that I use all the time. There is such a, a flavor of the world in Toronto. Every time I'm up there, I, I always have a great time. Um, and you know what? It's interesting. Uh, being north of the Great Lakes, while you guys do have the cold, it's mostly sunny. Uh, it's very rare that you guys have a gray, cloudy day. You know, and I think that's because you're north of the Great Lakes. I've been in there in February, you know, zero out, but it's um, it's beautifully sunny. You got to wear sunglasses. So get a chance. Get up to Toronto, folks. Uh, so, John, let's, yeah, sure. Right. <laughs> so, John, you are CEO of Canada Dent Corporation. You're also managing partner of Integrate Dental Group. You've been in mergers and acquisitions uh, uh, over two billion dollars across major industries for a number of years. But most of what we're here to talk about is healthcare, and in particular dental. I'm looking for people to help me speak about, you know, roll ups, speaking about exit strategies for young dentists, old dentists in particular. Could be any business, really. But anyhow, expand a little bit on your career, John, and, and how we got here and what exactly is Canada Dent Corporation? Well, I started my career in the banking world, Todd. I spent about 15 years in that area. And over time, I became a specialist in corporate restructurings and workouts, large troubled loans. That's what led me into M&A because a lot of the corporate loan restructuring work involves M&A, selling off parts of businesses, recapitalizing businesses, or even acquiring new businesses to strengthen ones that are weak. So that led me into M&A. And when I left the banking world after about 15 years, I went into the entrepreneurial financial world, where I spent about another 15 years, part of it doing what has turned out to be probably my passion in life, which is venture capital and private equity work, particularly on the small and lower middle market. So 
some of my best success stories or my most loved times were in the VC world. And we can maybe come back to that if you want to in a minute. But we had a couple of notable success stories in technology financings that were related to healthcare. And ultimately, I think that's maybe what oriented me towards healthcare and into the dental world. Uh, so after the entrepreneurial financial world for about 15 years, uh, a little over a decade ago, I stumbled into the dental healthcare world as a result of mutual acquaintances from my BC and private equity and fund management days. Um, in one of those positions, I had become uh, acquainted with an orthodontist in the Toronto area mm. who had a small group of three offices. And he was really struggling coming out of the 07 to 09 financial crisis. You know, the dental market for specialty practices in Canada in those days took a real hit coming off the financial crisis. And his little orthodontic group was, it was heading slowly but surely towards bankruptcy. He, he didn't, he had not responded to reductions in demand in the marketplace. His revenue was falling off rapidly over the space of a couple of years, but he hadn't done anything to restructure his business and trim his costs to stay afloat. So he asked me, knowing my background, if I would help him. And over the space of, I guess, maybe about nine months or so, reorganized his business. We cut some costs. We did some restaffing. We refinanced one of his properties to increase his working capital to keep him alive for a while. And at the end of that, we had a big success story, or at least a little success story on our hands. He went on to be successful as an orthodontist instead of failing. And word of mouth got around that I could help dentists who needed business help. Mm -hmm. I never really intended to get into the dental world. I was between chapters in life at that point. But I ended up liking dentists. They're wonderful people to work with. I like the people contact part of the business world with dentists. Mm -hmm. So I ended up starting a practice management company which did in-office practice management and consulting work, operational consulting. And I specialized on the other side of it, doing acquisition and, and financing consulting. We did that for three or four years. And at the end of that period of time, I thought to myself, you know, I've just done in the last, it was four years, the end of the fourth year, I said to myself, I've successfully completed five acquisitions in the last four years for other people, why am I not doing this for myself? So I changed my business model and started doing it for myself. We created Canadent as a, an umbrella, a holding company for a group practice and started acquiring and owning practices and uh, built Canadent from there. So it is an owner operator of practices, a smallish group in the Southern Ontario area. And Integra Dental is a spin-off or an offshoot through which I do consulting work for other dentists who need assistance in financing or acquisitions or valuations or that, that side of the market. And I specialize on the buy side of the market. I help people who are looking to buy. It sounds like uh, you and I are very similar in what what I'm starting and what you've already done. One of the reasons why our, our uh, mutual friend uh, Len Wright connected us, right? How many offices does Canada have now in that uh, southern Ontario region? We have nine at the moment. Our most recent acquisition being added on two years ago in the summer of 21. Mm -hmm. um, so... We had done from 2014 when we started until 2021. In seven years, we did eight. And then, of course, COVID came along and the world changed and everything slowed down. So we've been uh, quiet, strategically quiet for the last couple of years um, as, as COVID hit and then left 
But I wanted to see what the impact of COVID was going to be on the market. I wanted to see how practices would respond operationally, whether they would return to pre-COVID levels of revenue and busyness, which generally, at least here in Canada, the industry has. It's, it's responded, it's rebounded pretty successfully. So we're cautiously moving back into the market this year. Uh, but we have a big issue here, as you do in the States, with rising interest rates and what that's doing to valuations on practices. Yeah. So the valuation side of the market is very much in flux. It's hard to tell what practices are worth sometimes. It seems to change from month to month and week to week. Mm -hmm. uh, and even from person to person, depending on whom you're talking to. There are also some impacts from the large DSOs, which we can talk about when we talk about DSOs later on, mm -hmm. because the two biggest DSOs in, in our country have essentially withdrawn from the marketplace and are not buying anymore. So that has changed the demand side of the marketplace significantly. And then you've got the sellers who are still thinking about the multiples from pre-COVID that were being thrown around to when money gets expensive, those multiples drop down because you, you can't have both. You can't have the high cost of money and pay a high multiple. Something has to give. And so I'm sure the expectation of the sellers is uh, something you need to overcome in order to acquire the next one, right? It's, that's the key issue right now. Um, the buy side of the market has adjusted. Mm -hmm. Valuations have come down. But sellers remember the prices that were available a year ago or 18 months ago before interest rates started to increase. They remember what their friend sold his practice or her practice for, mm -hmm. and they're bound and determined to get the same value for their practice. It's not happening anymore yeah. for a variety of reasons. And we can talk about valuations in more detail, but the, the simple bottom line is you have to be able to service your debt and you have to be able to meet the debt service ratios and requirements that the lenders have when they're going to lend you a big chunk of money to buy the practice. Yeah, You can't do that if you try to value the practice at values that applied a year ago. It doesn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. Which is why strategically sitting on the sidelines for a period of time and just kind of waiting it out. Um, sounds like a, a wise plan. I would rather keep my cash safe and have it available to use when I need it rather than taking a shot at something because I just feel compelled to go out and buy something and then realize after the fact that it was the wrong thing to do. There's an 80-20 rule that applies in M&A. 20% of your deals will cause you 80% of your grief. <laughs> And so, you know, if you think about the size of my group and your group, we're both, I think, at the eight or nine level in terms of offices. That means out of if we have nine offices or call it 10 in round numbers, eight of them will be functioning nicely and not require much management attention. But one or two of them are going to be problems and they will take up so much time and effort that they're really not worth having in the portfolio. You nailed it. It's exactly what we're experiencing. It's interesting. Do you experience with your group that it's for a period of time, it's this one or two practices, and then two that you thought were doing fantastic, all of a sudden have a new group of problems pop up. You've solved those two, and now it's two more. Do you notice that? You never the, seem to... The, everybody the rolling was, disaster theory. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's like they all want their turn at being your problem child. <laughs> yeah. um, well, you know, if, if you're a parent and you have several teenagers in the family, you could analogize to that, but there we won't go. go there, will we? <laughs> no, um, no. Well, let's 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 dial this back down to the single entity, maybe two location dental practice is if you're a small business owner or a dentist at what point in your career are you starting to think about exiting? And that's kind of my big question that I've been asking everybody. At what point would you be looking to prepare for an exit, selling your practice to you, to me, to an associate? When do you think that 
that should be started to be thought about, talked about? Well, in the in the modern dental world, modern meaning in in this era where many young dentists come out and spend the first five to 10 years of their career as an associate, not as an owner, even though they may want to be an owner. You know, there's the mantra that you have to get your 10,000 hours in. You have to become clinically efficient. You have to be able to do things with a degree of speed in the operatory. You can't stay at the level you were when you graduated, where something may have taken you an hour and a quarter to do as a as a procedure. You have to get that into your 45-minute time slot mm -hmm. in real life. There's an introductory period in the career, and I wouldn't push a young dentist to really be thinking about the exit point of their career when they're still trying to get their clinical feet under them. Mm -hmm. But probably sometime by your by the time you're in your mid to late 30s and you've, you've got that clinical foundation well established and you're looking to be an owner at that point, you've maybe saved up some money, you have some clinical uh, some clinical expertise that you can bank on. And you go to the bank and you want to buy a practice, so you're, let's say you're 35, if you're a GP. At that point, you've got, well, maybe 30 or 35 years left in your career where you would want to be active uh, before you might want to, to exit the profession. That's the point as soon as you become an owner. On day one of being an owner, you should start thinking about the last day of being an owner. Why? Because. You don't really need to think about little detailed specifics when you're 35, but you do need to think about two broad things. First of all, what are you going to do with your own clinical career? What skill sets are you going to build? How are you going to develop them? What does that mean in terms of revenue generation for you as a dentist? And what kind of practice does that lead to? And secondly, as a segue from the first point, what kind of practice do you want to create? How big a practice do you want? Do you understand the business reality that you will never really become wealthy if all you do is rely on your own production? You must be able to capitalize on other people's production to build a larger practice and to build a larger revenue stream. You don't want to be stuck in a solo dentist, one hygienist practice for your, your whole career. That may provide you with a comfortable living and a nice two-story house in the suburbs, but it's not going to provide you with wealth that will enable you to retire early or to have a nice cottage or to have, if you're a traveler, to see parts of the world or whatever. You need to build out from the base and you need to think about that from day one. I couldn't agree more. In fact, um, uh, you know, I wrote an article, uh, I know you have too, for Acquisition Affectionado, which is uh, Len Wright's um, online periodical, folks. If you haven't gone to it, I've mentioned it on other um, podcasts, but check it out. It's a great periodical. A lot of, lot of different writers, all about mergers and acquisitions, but what you can pull from experienced people in different businesses for your business uh, is uh, insurmountable coming out of out of that periodical. And uh, I wrote my article and I talked about, I, I say, dear 35-year-old self, John, and that's exactly it. It's, you need your 10,000 hours. You, you check that box for me. I'm a big believer in uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, where that first came out and his whole chapter on 10,000 hours. You do need to be somewhat of an expert. Where we fail as dentists, in my opinion, especially coming out of dental school and then getting that clinical acumen over those 10,000 hours, is we don't get a business acumen. We are not educated that way. It is the school of hard knocks is how many of us learn. I know I learned, learned it that way. I wish I, had, I wish I had half the money that I know I've lost along the way making mistakes that had I had the right advice or the right financial background, I wouldn't have made those mistakes. And many of my colleagues fail to do that. And what they fail when and where I see that, and I think this is where your your consulting side and my consulting side come into play. We're seeing these doctors now at 50, 55, and 60 looking to sell their practices, looking to exit, but they have 
they never gained that financial acumen to, in order to create value, in order to understand that someday they're going to sell this thing. And in order to get the top dollar for it, they needed to do these other things and they, they've failed to do that. And now you and I are scrambling, trying to help them in the next two years, get something. Um, and it makes it more difficult. So starting at 35 was my number um, because you are clinically sound. Now let's get you um, business savvy. You've bought the practice and let's start thinking, what is the plan? Um, when are you going to, let's start backwards. I want to retire at 60. Okay. How do we get there? And and work backwards uh, to that age of 35. So you and I are on the, definitely on the same wave, wave, wavelength there. Speaking of uh, practices, you know, being bought and sold and startup group practices, the whole process, you know, from the buyer's perspective, the seller's perspective, starting a, a small group practice, the process itself, do you find that there's some things that you would like to change about it? Some things that stick out that you feel are difficult hurdles almost every time, regardless of what side of the fence you're on? I think one of the, the choke points, if you want to call it that, in this industry is the acquisition of the practice. You can teach a person, a dentist, how to manage effectively. It's not rocket science, and dentists are smart people. Once they're shown how to do it, they, t they generally pick it up fairly quickly and, and do it effectively. But the actual process of acquisition is a difficult one, at least in our market. And I, from what I know of yours, I think it's very similar. The market is not a transparent market. It's difficult for information to move between buyers and sellers because information is controlled by a small number of brokers. The brokers also act as appraisers. So they first of all determine the value of a practice and then they go out and sell it. I won't get into my usual rant about conflicts of interest, but that's a huge one at the very beginning. Yep. I've written about it, I've posted on LinkedIn, anybody who uh, is listening, go look at my profile, look at my posts. Issues about broker appraisers and conflicts of interest and lack of transparency in valuations, and all of those related issues are a very difficult hurdle for an unsophisticated dentist to overcome. And I mean unsophisticated in the sense of not having gone through the purchasing process before for a practice. If it's their first practice, it's like buying your first house. You don't know what to look for. You don't know what's good. You don't know what's bad. You don't know right. what represents good value. Uh, you're at the mercy of the broker who tells you that they've got this wonderful practice and the value is such and such, and you really must come and look at it. Oh, and by the way, offers are being accepted the day after tomorrow, and you're going to miss the boat. Right. Creates a need. So you know, that the whole process is built in a way that is disadvantageous to the dentist as a buyer. And until the process changes, until there is more transparency, until there's a separation of activities between the brokerage function and the valuation function, which exists in the housing market and has for decades. You know, in the United States, Benny May and Freddie Mac back around 1990 brought in new rules and regulations that they would not guarantee mortgage loans on houses where the seller, the selling agent, was also the person who had appraised it. They forced a split in that function. Mm -hmm. that has, that's the same in Canada. The problem is, if you go back a level in the industry, banks, as you know, love lending money to dentists. Why? Because business failures and bankruptcies and therefore loan losses are virtually non-existent in this industry. Yep. So the banks provide money by the, by the wheelbarrow load, so to speak. And for most of the last decade, it was exceptionally cheap money. Mm -hmm. So the banks have not done anything to fulfill the role that they would normally fulfill as 
um, as a bit of a second sober um, player in the market to look at valuations and insist that appraisals are realistic and all the rest of it, they have been motivated to simply get as much money out as they could to lend into, the, into this attractive industry. Ever since Silicon Valley Bank and the two failures that followed it starting mm -hmm. in two months ago, mm -hmm. things are changing on that front too. I know in the Canadian banking system, from my contacts in, in the banking world, the regulators here have been sitting in the back offices of the banks, going through loan portfolios, putting stickies on files that need to be reviewed because of valuation issues or too liberal lending criteria or whatever. Mm -hmm. So we may see some of this change and it would be a welcome change, but the problem is the process and dentists yeah. are confronted with a difficult acquisition process. Uh, you know, let me, so this is a great segue into sort of the next sort of thoughts and line of questioning. And it has to do with the, you mentioned earlier, DSO and um, private equity VC. But that's where I think, I think that dentists need to be involved in uh, companies that are run by, you know, or owned by private equity VC or, or the DSO themselves. I think dentists definitely need to be because we're the ones that are in the weeds. But what those other entities have done is they've brought, um, They've brought the concept of systems. They've brought the the concept of continuity across business models, right? And so what you're saying is that the most challenging thing about buying, selling, rolling up is this process of acquisition. It needs to be more standardized in the dental world. I think more recently, I've seen the way we value practices based on what I think is sort of most a universal methodology, and that is a multiple of EBITDA versus the old. There were methods for practice valuation based on revenue. There was one based on um, number of patients seen. There was one based on a combination of patients um, you know, over 18 months, a number of new patients, all these formulas. Um, and I can show you all the books because I read them all. Um, but more, I think we're getting more standardized. Uh, it's whether, like you said, the brokers, are the brokers up to that level of standardization? And then you still wind up doing your due diligence anyhow. You do, I do. And it's a question of whether we actually come up with that value. Would you agree with that, though, that it's the standardization that is needed in the process, as we've seen with other parts of the dental world? Well, the one thing that the DSOs, particularly the DSOs in general, collectively as part of the industry, and the large DSOs on their own as, as a sort of driving force in the industry, the one benefit of, of their presence is what you've just said, and that is they forced a degree of standardization on the buying process because they also had their own valuation methodologies and they were all basically the same. So there was a large part of the industry that was working off the same platform for valuations and also approaching the acquisition process in a very similar fashion. Unfortunately, that hasn't trickled down or filtered out into the, the solo dentist world yet. Right. But, uh, you know, it will sooner or later. It's, it's a question of time, I think. And that's the point of that. That's the, a big message that I'm trying to deliver with the Dentrepreneur is, look, folks, you have a small single practice. What you need to do is get in line. And I mean, I don't mean in line as in wait your turn. I mean, get in line with the steps that are necessary to create better valuation. You may as well do it the way everybody else is going to value you someday. Get those systems in place. Get those KPIs monitored. Show data from years, not just one year, but show a trend. Everybody's going to look at your trailing 12 months anyhow. That's all they're going to care about. What have you done for me lately? But if you can demonstrate success of these systems, and that's what the private equity VC has brought to the large group practices, but as you're saying, not to the small ones. And that's who I'm trying to reach out to, the single shingle person that needs to be in a system, it will add value to your practice. It, it will definitely add value, partly because you have to look at it from the simple point of view that 
nowadays, the DSOs represent, you know, depending which country you're in, somewhere between probably 10 and 25% of the purchasing power and the purchasing activity in the dental marketplace. You know, whether you're in Australia or the US or Canada or Great Britain, uh, where all of those countries have large DSO communities and they all have a large influence in those dental industries. The odds are that when it's time for you to exit, it's going, there is going to be at least one DSO knocking on your door as part of that process who's interested in buying your practice. And because they are funded with private equity, they tend to have deep pockets. They tend to pay good prices, sometimes better prices than other people in the market. And so if you want to take advantage of the opportunity of selling to a DSO, you have to organize your practice and make sure that it's functioning on the basis that will be attractive to a DSO. Even if you don't end up selling to one, that will also position you to be attractive and to get a good valuation with a non-DSO purchaser. Right. I mean, hit the nail on the head, my friend. And I feel like I'm, um, your, your words are echoing uh, around my office here um, of what I say all the time. It, it's amazing how uh, I love you. I love my alignment with your with your thought process. I really do. Maybe there's an opportunity for us to collaborate at some point uh, to do some uh, consulting work uh, off of a joint platform here on issues of operational and valuation consulting. That's what solo dentists or the the twosies and threesies dentists. That's what they need the most to help I agree. them. I agree. And John, I love that. I was going to suggest at the end of the show that I'll be making a trip up to Toronto in the coming months to uh, sit down with you. I think it would be a, a blast. I haven't been to uh, your great city for, oh, geez, before COVID, actually. I need to get up there. So we'll save that for after the show. We've been talking a lot about valuation and you know working towards the highest one. You know, I, I'm big systems, believe in systems, believe in uh, culture. Uh, that was more recently shown to me uh, in the last couple of years, how important culture is. And uh, I didn't realize it, that it was somewhat of an innate thing for me personally uh, to attract the teammates that, you know, and put them in place uh, that I, you know, gravitated to uh, and it would make for a better business for me and how important it is now that I can say it outwardly. So systems and culture are two things that I look at in determining valuation, obviously the PNL, you, we can, you know, we have our methodologies to determine whether it's a value uh, on the numbers side. But what do you think are the biggest factors in determining valuation for a, a practice that you guys are uh, approaching uh, as an acquisition? Uh, well, in addition to systems and culture, I mean, let me within culture, for example, there are sub issues sometimes that are important. You know, one of the things of culture is cohesion on the team, because cohesion leads to efficiency and effectiveness. It also leads to lack of discord. It leads to good team spirit, to a feeling that there's a raison d'etre in the office for providing good patient care. I was looking at a, a practice just two weeks ago for a dentist, uh, he actually was on the sell side, but was having trouble selling. And a mutual acquaintance who was his lawyer, who was going to handle the sale transaction, came to me and said, you know, I know that you work mostly on the buy side, but nobody's buying this. Can you tell us why? Give us a different perspective here. So I looked at it, and the, one of the first things that jumped out at me in the appraisal was the page with the chart that had all the staff on it. You know, the, the number of years they've been in the practice, the hours they work each week, the role that they have. And I looked at it and there were seven non-dentist uh, staff members in the office and five of them had turned over within the last 12 months. Mm. That's a real warning signal to a buyer. Yep. If your team has that degree of instability in it, then it's not cohesive. Just by definition, the people don't know each other well enough to be working together closely. They don't have the efficiency level that 
you would want them to have. As a result, they're not effective. They don't have good flow in operations in the office. You know, they're, they're not literally bumping into one another, but from a procedural point of view in the office, they're not nearly as effective as they could be. That's a little warning sign. Look at the stability in the staff when you're looking at evaluation. One of the other things I look at is the mix of treatment. Mix of treatment, from my view, is very important. The old, very narrowly focused, as or as we would call it, the conservative dentist who does uh, simple drill and fill kind of restorative work. Patchwork. Patchwork dentistry, Patch- right? Exactly. That's a great phrase. Um, that dentist may have a lot of outbound referrals simply because they never developed their skill sets to keep procedures in-house. There may well be a lot of lost revenue there. In other words, upside in the practice for a younger practitioner with a broader skill set who's coming in to buy it. Now, the problem is, and here's the, the herein lies the rub, as Shakespeare would have said, Some brokers, when they value a practice, will try to factor that future potential into the present valuation. And they try to get this young associate dentist who's eagerly waiting to buy his or her first practice. They try to get them to pay for the future of the practice. But that is something that only the new incoming dentist can develop. It's not there at the moment. Future goodwill. You're going to pay for my future. You're going to pay for your own future goodwill if you buy my practice. Oh my God. That's so funny. I just told this story to somebody yesterday, one of my clients. And I said, you can't be that person. You can't come in and in the the young doc or or even my group coming or your group coming in to buy. Um, Or they'll say, you know, I used to do my own root canals and my own extractions. But 10 years ago, I stopped doing that. I went down to three days a week. I know my practice is only doing half a million annually. It used to do a million. And with somebody, you're the right doctor in here. You can certainly do more than a million. Therefore, I want evaluation based on a million dollar revenue. No, what have you done for me lately is what I'm going to pay you for. So same thought, John. Oh, my gosh. Sorry, I sort of interrupted you there. Continue. I, I apologize. No, well, but because what it what happens in those situations very simply is once you stop doing those procedures, it begins to affect your patient base because the people who need those procedures will go somewhere else where they can get one-stop shopping yep. for their treatment. They patients don't want. I have preached for years, and I am a firm believer in the idea that patients want convenience of treatment. They don't want to have to be referred to multiple practitioners if that can be avoided. Occasionally, it has to happen, but it shouldn't be happening on a regular basis. If a person needs beyond normal restorative work, if they need basic endodontic work, if they need basic orthodontics, All of that should be handled in-house. Not only does it add to your revenue stream and therefore increase the value of your practice, it also increases the loyalty of your patient base because they identify with you as their primary caregiver. So true. And any more, I mean, that's what we're hoping that the young associates who come out of school, and if you are one of those listening to us, please build your skill set. Patients love, don't want to go anywhere. And this is what the medical model has sort of created too, John, is you go to your primary care who is really just a gatekeeper, right? Come in, you clearly got a broken arm, got to go over to that guy. You know, you got a heart condition, got to go over to that guy. It's the medical community is all about referral. No one, I don't know if it's, um, there's a liability mentality where they don't want to take the risk and therefore you know, they're afraid to do anything themselves, but it's very much a referral-based program. Dentistry was like that for a long time, but now it doesn't have to be. I certainly still refer. I'm still a practicing dentist. I still refer to specialists, but I, re- I refer the extreme cases. I, I refer the ones where, yeah, you know what? My um, I used to do what we call, John, called sinus lifts, grow bone in the, the sinus to place implants. I don't do them often enough anymore. 
So therefore, I don't trust my own skill set. You belong in the hands of someone who does it on a regular basis. That's the idea of a referral. Now, in the meantime, if I don't have to do that, of course, I'm placing your implant because I'm keeping that in-house. And I know that that adds value to the overall practice. Um, Exactly. And there's other simple areas, too, for a young dentist uh, who's willing to put in in that initial 10-year, 10,000-hour period of of getting their clinical foundation well-established to do some continuing education. Mm. There's no reason that a young dentist should not be a certified Invisalign provider. Right. Why? Not because Invisalign is the be-all and end-all in orthodontics. It isn't. But for 60 or 70% mild to moderate cases of alignment, Invisalign is a functional alternative. Mm-hmm. It's the same with endodontics. Modern technology allows a GP to produce a good, reliable result in 60 or 70 percent of endodontic cases in a, in the GP office. Right. You only have to refer out the marginal cases, the ones that are so difficult or so specialized that they're beyond the scope of a normal GP. But modern technology has allowed a GP to expand their scope of practice considerably. I agree. John, there's also uh, there's also a stigma that I think it's an old think about liability issues with dentistry. You know, everyone's afraid of uh, malpractice. And so you have the specialist out there telling you, you know, you shouldn't do that because if it fails, you're going to get sued. And I tell doctors, no, that is not that is not what's going to happen. First of all, things do go wrong. Medicine is not perfect. It is trial and error. But if you are a good communicator to your patient, you do have the backing of solid continuing education. You've built up some experience. You are best served by knowing about the things that can go wrong and how you're going to solve them. It doesn't mean that you're going to intentionally do a bad job. You're going to do the best, but God's will is not going to necessarily allow the outcome that you're expecting. And it's how you handle that, that poor outcome, that unexpected outcome that actually prevents you from having to go down any lawsuit, any malpractice case. Choose the case, explain it to the patient, all the positives, all the negatives. And then when the negatives happen, because they will, because none of us, none of us are perfect. It's going to happen. It's how you handle that case. When failure happens, how are you going to do it? And that will allow you then the confidence. I always say this to have a plan B. So in my world, you know, I'm placing an implant. And if there's going to be a plan B where it fails, what am I going to do? How am I going to handle it? I've already thought my way through it so that when, unfortunately, it happens, I'm already prepared for that. And then experience teaches me, oh, I've seen that failure before. I know how to handle it. It's the same thing with business. It's Once you have the experience or someone's helped you, if you make a mistake, you learn faster than had you not, right? Unfortunately, we human beings learn fastest and most effectively from pain rather than pleasure. And so it's the mistake that teaches you fastest about how to not do things in the future. Right. Um, but, you know, one of the other benefits we have on, on our side of the border is that we live and function in a less litigious mm. environment here in Canada than you do in the, in the States. Yeah. And that is actually a significant help mentally, psychologically, in terms of case preparation, case selection. Yeah. When a dentist knows that as long as they do their best and can show they did what met meets the standard of care, met the, the standard, standard of care, care yep. yeah. that they're not going to be in court for the next two years if somebody doesn't like the right. result, right. even if from a clinical point of view, it was an acceptable result. Yeah. I see that a lot. In fact, I um, do at re- expert witness work uh, for, you know, in dental. And uh, that's that's the litmus test, standard of care. What is the standard of care? That comes from continuing education. That comes from mentorship. That comes from experience to some degree. That comes from knowing the law, knowing the, knowing the scope of uh, your license. Um, and if you are averse in all that, then you're meeting the, you, and you document it, you're meeting the standard of care. In fact, I just got done reviewing a case where the standard of care was not met and it had to do with documentation. 
you know, uh, anyhow, not not to go off on that tangent. John, um, we've been uh, chatting for quite some time today. It's been an amazing, amazing interview. I really appreciate your time. I close um, with all of my guests. I ask about your influencers, who or what influences or has influenced still today, John McNabb. Um, some people have given me their brothers, their wives, their parents, uh, books that they've read, poems uh, that they think about. What uh, songs? Uh, someone told me about a song that uh, reverberates <laughs> in their head. What is an influence or who has been an influence for John McNabb in this dynamic career from financial services into M&A and now into uh, into my uh, into my yard of dentistry? Well, there have been several and they're actually quite diverse. My first uh, my first and probably greatest influencer was my father. He was an army officer in the Canadian Army in the Second World War. Mm -hmm. And he adopted a, a slogan, a, ghost, a, a, a mantra that I think was part of his thinking and part of his leadership role um, as an infantry officer uh, in France and the Low Countries in Germany in the war. And that was go for it. Mm. Um, you know, ultimately, you have to stop thinking about it. You have to stop planning. You have to stop strategizing. You either go for it or you, or you don't. And if you don't, as Wayne Gretzky said, for everybody who's a hockey fan, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So, first of all, go for it. Secondly, in my early days as a banker, a young banker doing M&A work, there were two lawyers who were about 10 or 15 years older than I was. I was in my 30s and they were 50-ish. And those extra 15 years of experience was a, a lot in terms of worldly experience, business experience. Their mentorship set me on a path of always trying to be constructive in deals. One of the things that frustrates me the most with lawyers as a breed of people is not that they're not good lawyers, but typically they are highly risk averse and their influence in doing a deal, in doing a, an acquisition of a practice or whatever, tends to be to look for reasons why it shouldn't happen or what can go wrong. My approach is the opposite. Why should we not be doing this? If there are obvious positives in the situation, how can we make this work? So my second piece of advice to anybody in this uh, environment is always look for the constructive approach and not the, the highly risk-averse approach because it's only by looking at things constructively that you'll actually get them done and that you'll actually go for it. And then lastly, there's the, the issue of looking for other people to surround yourself with who know more than you do. And that's very difficult for many people to do. There's an old saying that you should never be the smartest person in the room. Because if you are, then you're, there's nobody in the room from, from whom you can learn. Right. This is something very important for young dentists especially, but dentists in general, who are trying to expand outside of the purely clinical world into buying practices, building groups, doing and, and getting all of the business side of their practice under control. It's very hard sometimes to put your ego aside and to admit that you don't know everything. Mm -hmm. The smartest person is the person who knows what they don't know. Because it's that person who can go out and find sources of information to mentor them and to help them learn. The person who is most dangerous to themselves in terms of future success is the person who thinks they know it all. Yep. I agree more. So those are my suggestions and the people who have led me to adopt that frame of mind. Yeah. Excellent words of advice, John. I Honestly, I, I love, again, I love your think. I, I feel like we're on the same wavelength. Um, 
I can't thank you enough for your time today. I know you're a really busy guy and you carved out some time to spend with me. Uh, obviously, there's going to be more. I'm going to ask you back on the show in you know the next year or so as we as uh, my show takes off. And it has, which I'm happily, happily happy about. John, how can anybody uh, want to further some of this conversation, especially those uh, possibly up in up in Canada who are looking to, um, you know, merge or sell their practices? Want, how would somebody get a hold of you, John? Well, getting a hold of me is actually pretty simple. Let's start with the oldest fashioned and most simple way, the telephone. You can reach me in Toronto. Uh, office telephone number 416-551-5660. You can reach me on my cell phone, 647-991-7219. You can reach me on LinkedIn. You can there there are not a lot of John McNabs on LinkedIn, folks. I'm easy to find. Uh, and I really encourage you to look at my LinkedIn profile because I have written a number of articles. I've posted a large volume of material on my profile. Uh, and one of the articles that I would encourage you to look at is featured right at the top of my profile, and it's called The Deal That Wouldn't Die. It's part of my MA history. It's about a fascinating restructuring and sale of a business. It was the first deal I ever did as a young banker. Um, And I think you'll find not only is it a good read, but there are a lot of acquisition lessons in there. Um, So LinkedIn. And then you can find me at Canadant through my email there. You can look at our website, canadant.ca. That's C-A-N-A-D-E-N-T dot C-A. The website is rather sparse, folks, and intentionally so, because we really don't use it to generate business for our acquisitions. We work on word of mouth and positive referrals in the industry. But you can reach me by my email there, which is jmcnab at candidate.ca. Perfect. Thank you again for your time, John, and uh, your wonderful insight. This is the Dentrepreneur Show. I'm Dr. D. Todd Russell. Please um, follow me, subscribe, share. Uh, We are available on Spotify, Apple, iTunes, podcasts, as well as our YouTube channel. Um, If you want further details about today's show, other shows, reach out to me personally. On You can go to my website, which is uh, dentrepreneurllc.com. It has all the links to those different uh, podcasts, as well as uh, contact directly to me. So thank you again, John. Have a wonderful weekend, my friend. It's been a real pleasure, Todd, and have a great Memorial Day holiday. Thank you for joining us. Please follow or subscribe to this show on Spotify, Apple, or YouTube. If you would like further information or to meet with me one-on-one and discuss your practice, please feel free to contact me through my website, dentrepreneurllc.com. Many more exciting guests and topics are headed your way. 